Uh, before I get too far, oh, there we went. Go too far into the message. Um, there's something I've been thinking about this last week. It's been really kind of weighing on me a little bit. Is uh, this question: How often do you pray? And just something you can think about, just personally, how often do you pray? I think about it for myself, and I would really say not not nearly often enough. Um, I usually only pray when I have to. And I was wondering why. Why is that the case? Um, And I was uh, raised in a wonderful way with a really fierce independence to be able to take care of myself, take care of those around me. Just, I can do it on my own. And that's what I was raised with. I'm really glad I was raised with that. It's helped me in a lot of ways. But there are certain times in our lives where things are going to be outside of your control. And what is your first response in that? Is it to pray? And a lot of times, mine isn't. And so I have, to be rem- I have to constantly remind myself, we need to be praying. We need to be turning to God. We have this amazing gift in our lives, this ability to speak with God Almighty. We need to be praying. And so I've made a habit recently um, of going through the news headlines uh, try to do it every morning because I'm ter- usually terribly uninformed. I have no idea what's going on in the world. And people are like, did you hear? No. <laughs> um, so just making a habit of that. And I'm not sure um, if any of you have been looking at things over this last couple of weeks, particularly this week. A lot of deaths around the nation, a lot of um, terrible things. And then as well, I've been seeing for weeks on end uh, consistent news articles about RSV, COVID, and flus impacting hospitals specifically their pediatric wings, which aren't terribly big. They're usually six or seven beds. It's a big deal to not be able to get a bed. And so um, thinking about this, my, my son, my, when he was four months old, went to the hospital for RSV. And there's nothing so <coughs> disempowering as having to go into the hospital with your child and having them hooked up to all these tubes that are going to keep them alive because you can do nothing. doesn't matter what you're capable of. They need that to survive. And I think about these hospitals now that are impacted across our nation because of these very normal flu things that are coming along, but because everybody stayed inside for a couple of years, we didn't get sick like we normally would do. So it's a heavy impact right now. And a lot of families with their kids are feeling that same way. So I would just ask that right now you agree with me as I pray for them. Lord, we know that you are a God who heals. And God, that you can restore. So we just ask that you touch all these children. You restore their bodies. You bring them to health. We pray for their doctors that they know exactly what to do. We thank you for the miracle of modern medicine that you've been able to put into this world that you put on the minds of people in order to bring health and wholeness and restore, Lord. We just pray for miraculous healing. We pray for these families. We pray for peace over their minds, over their hearts, over their, just over everything. We pray that they're surrounded by people that are loving them and supporting them and can lift them up during this time, even people that can just either bring meals or a word of encouragement, Lord. We just we pray over the situation. We pray that these families can go home that they can enjoy their their holiday time together, that this wouldn't be an impact 
that this is something they can actually glorify your name and that it was miraculous that they were able to just see the remarkable healing that went on God. Mm-hmm. We believe that you can heal and we believe that you are who you say you are, Lord. So we put our faith and our trust in you and we just make this request of you, Lord. All of this in your name. Amen. Amen. And this isn't the only time we should pray that. I would encourage you as you go out through your week to continue praying over these things. When you look through the news articles, when you see the difficult things going in the world, pray over that. Pray against the evil in the world. Pray against the disease in the world. Pray for salvations. Pray for healings. Pray that people get turned back to God. And pray for his peace to sweep across the nation. We're going to be continuing in our narrative this morning of going through Genesis, talking about the flood account. And the highlight of today is actually peace. Peace that's only going to come through God. Over the last couple weeks, we've talked about stewardship. How are you handling the things that God has given you? And we read a verse talking about all the things that belong to you versus all the things that belong to God. And God owns the earth and everything in it, and all the people therein. So the things that belong to you is a very short list. (laughs) The things that belong to God is everything. How are we handling the things that God has given us? Are we being good stewards of it? Last week, Ty brought an excellent message on God's salvation, and that from the very beginning, God has a way for us to be saved through him, through obeying him, through listening to him, through turning back to him. This is the account of Noah building the ark before the floods came. But now the floods have come, and the whole earth has been covered. We're in an interesting situation where they're in the boat. The last people alive on earth are in the boat, and it's floating aimless without a rudder. But I thought even if they had a rudder, they have no place to aim it's nothing but water everywhere. There's no direction anymore. It's just endless ocean. And that would probably be a terrifying place to be in. It's all happened. The cataclysm has come. And that was, there's a lot of adrenaline. There's a lot of excitement going on. There's a lot of anticipation. But then it all ceases. And it's just Nothing. If you've ever been out on the waters away from land in just the quiet of the morning, it's eerie. And that's just all they would have. This is the moment. They need more than ever faith and peace that God provides. Peace is described as the state of harmony that is available to believers through having a right relationship with God. Out of Psalm 34, it says to us, Come, O children, listen to me. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek and pursue are active statements. They're not things that just happen. You cannot seek something by sitting. You cannot pursue something by just standing. It's an active thing we must do. We can't just hope it's going to happen. We can't hope 
for peace, but never try to make peace with somebody. Something we're going to have to move towards. Out of Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. We have the good news of salvation. We have the offering of peace to every person in this world through the saving work of Jesus Christ, that he came, he died for the sins of all mankind, and he rose himself again by his own power to prove that he was God and that we may have hope in him we may trust him and that he is true to his word. But all of this happens on God's terms. And with that in mind, we're going to start in on Genesis 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. But God remembered. And I'm thinking about that verse and that word, we have our personal tie to what that might mean. Um, but it's one of those words is, I don't think that means what you think it means, kind of words. Kind of like when we talked about God regretted. This idea of remembrance isn't that he forgot. It's not like he was bringing on the cataclysm and it's thunderbolts and lightning and everything's very, very frightening. Oh, look, Noah forgot about him. <laughs> it's going to be okay. It's not what's going on here. He is rec- the event has happened. The work has been done. Now the next thing is the promise that's been made. The fulfillment of the promise. And the solution is about to begin. God remembered. It's something we see thematically throughout the rest of Scripture. We see direct accounts of this language in uh, Exodus 2. 2 Samuel 22, 2 Chronicles 33, 1 Samuel 1, all talking about when God remembered his promises to someone and then he fulfills them to them. God is not forgetful. He's not far off. He hasn't left us. When we read out of 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8, it says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people should we be? When we think of all the amazing things that God's done, all the effort that he put forth so we could have what we have, who should we be? How should we walk with the Lord? And so then the work of salvation begins. He sends a wind, and that word is ruach. It's a lot of good sounds in Hebrew. Ruach. It means a breeze. It can mean breath, wind, spirit, sense, mind, intellectual frame of mind. 
and it's meant to cause a remembrance already of Genesis 1 when it talks about the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. We've been here before. We've got an earth covered in water. This is Genesis 1. And how did God have the solution to this? Well, He sent His Spirit to hover over the waters and to make things happen because there's a lot of water. There's a ridiculous amount of water. We're going to really dig into that because that was the main question. Where did the water go? I started scratching my head about that. We're going to run into that in a little bit because the water covered all the mountains. It's a lot of water. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So we're going to throw up a photo here. The mountains of, an, of Ararat are an actual place. This isn't a fairy tale. It's not a book of, of good ideas where they made up things. No, this is it's an actual place. It's at the corner currently of Turkey, Armenia, and I think Iraq. It's Iran or Iraq. They're both right there. Anyways, a lot of people have said, well, it must be on that big mountain right there, but this is a whole range. If you were to go up a bit, there's mountainous areas that go all the way behind it. And it doesn't say he landed on the mountain. It says he landed in the mountains, somewhere in this region. But it's a place. And they touched down there. And they're not going to leave that boat, actually, for quite a bit of time from this point. But it starts describing some interesting things, things that have been explained a little bit to us, but we really have to keep in mind for a moment that if we try to look at this purely from a physical, scientific sense, it will not make sense. Because we have God interacting with our world. We have the spiritual colliding with the physical, making things happen that would not have happened on their own. It says the fountains of the deep were closed, and the windows of heaven were closed. And if we go back to the previous chapter, it said that the waters were 22 feet above the mountains. Now, addressing each one of those individually, the windows of heaven should be a reminder of, again, back in Genesis 1, when God sets some things up. It says out of Genesis 1, verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, the separated waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Now that expanse contains the air above us. That's where the birds are. That's where all the clouds are. And that's also where the moon and the stars and the sun are. So I think a lot of times we thought that expanse is like, well, that's just our earth. That's the globe and that wonderful sphere that surrounds us. But the sun, moon, and stars aren't in that. So that expanse is literally the universe. And it says here that there's waters outside of that. That's not something we can comprehend. This is the spiritual colliding with the physical here. There are waters that God has access to that we do not. And if he so chooses to open the heavens, which appears for eight times in scripture, it's never described as normal rain. I think a lot of times when we see the Noah story and we see that's flooding, we just think it's a lot of rain. But that opening the windows of heaven is never just normal rain. It's water dumping down that really shouldn't be there. 
And then we have the fountains of the deep. And so if you've watched the movie Noah and some of the accounts, we think the earth just bursting forward with all the waters because we know there's underground water. It's where we dig wells. It's where we drink in water for thousands and thousands of years. It's fresh. It's clean. But the deep is never used to describe the earth. That word deep is tehom. It's used to describe the deep ocean waters. When it says that God's spirit is hovering over the deep, it's the tehom. And so the fountains of the deep, what is that? I have no idea. And nobody does. God added waters there that weren't there before. And then it says that the waters ended up being 22 feet above the mountains, Genesis 7:20. The waters prevailed on the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Remember a cubit, fingertip to elbow, it's around 18 inches, around 22 feet deep. So what happened here and where did all this water come from? Because when I was looking through it this week, there's a lot of people arguing against the flood. Some people arguing for, well, it could have been a local flood, but it probably didn't cover the whole earth. And um, there's no way there could have been a flood at all because Mount Everest, I mean, look how tall Mount Everest, if you had that much water and you flattened the globe, and it's, it would take literally as the world currently is over double the amount of water that's here to flood the earth. Meaning as the world currently is and the water that's currently on it, you couldn't flood the earth even if you were able to get all the water up. That couldn't happen. So what happened? Where did the waters go? Is my big question. Well, Psalm 104 gives us an idea into this, and it spurs two theories I have on this. Because God doesn't say. He just says it abated. He doesn't explain the intricate details of what he's done. It's our opportunity to look at our world and discover potential truths for this, or often actual truths to this, as we find that the Bible keeps pointing to actual things. Imagine that. Psalm 104. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep. As with a garment, the water stood above the mountains. This is the Noah account. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So we have a situation gone here. God is again interfering with how things would normally go on. So I have two theories. One of them is based on the how describes the waters coming in and then they abated by the wind blowing across the earth. First theory, God let them in by the windows of heaven and the fountains of the deep. God can let them out that way. And it's fairly easy to see it that way. That's not my strongest theory. I'm just considering spiritual interactions here going on in the world. The theory that I feel a bit more strongly on it having to do from that description in Psalm 104 that during this time, mountains grew and valleys sank, and things moved around. Now, these are natural occurrences that we know about. Because when I was reading that argument about Mount Everest being too tall, and then I just looked up very quickly a couple things about Mount Everest, Mount Everest grows every year. Every single year, it gets taller. And so if you look at things right now, it does not give you a clear picture into what it was then. And there's some other things that go on that makes me think that God interfered a bit during this time. I'm going to put up a photo here. 
Now, when I was younger and in school and they showed me a map of the world, I went, hey, those are like puzzle pieces. They all fit right together, don't they? And they do. And we've discovered through modern science and geology that the earth moves and it causes mountains to grow and it causes oceans to form and valleys to sink down and volcanoes to form. It creates literally new land and it's still doing that at a very slow scale. But we're dealing with God who make, can make things happen at a very fast pace. If that were all to move quickly, it would be an incredible cataclysmic event like one we've just read. So my strongest theory is that in Noah's day, that's what the earth looked like. Mm -hmm. And then in order to make it so that all the waters could move about and the land could be brought up again, God moved the plates that are there, that we know are there, that cause mountains to grow, that causes valleys to sink down, that cause oceans to be formed, and the waters abated. And this is my theory I present to you. <laughs> and as I got, went through that, and I went through all of this really deep dive into it, I had the question that immediately popped in my mind, why are we explaining all of this? Because the Bible says the waters have abated. Why are we explaining all this? And the first point is this. Every single person on this planet can identify with the people on the boat. You are adrift. You are adrift on the endless ocean. And life needs purpose. There needs to be something you are trying to obtain, something you are seeking, something you are moving towards in your life. Otherwise, you aimlessly drift. Without God, people seek power. They seek money. They seek pleasure. They seek fame. They seek something to fill that void, that void of purpose. Otherwise, you're just adrift. God gives us this ultimate purpose to our lives, this thing to live for beyond ourselves, to live to bring goodness and light into the world, to walk in God's ways, to honor the one who made everything. He gives us purpose. And the second thing is to be able to give an answer when people ask the questions. These are the questions people ask about. These are the things they try to point to in Scripture to disprove Scripture. And so when we read out of 1 Peter 3, verse 15, it says, be always ready to be, to be able to give an account for the hope that lies within you, but with all gentleness and respect, not in a shouting match, not in a big argument where you're throwing books across the table at each other, using facts like swords, gentleness and respect, but ready to give an account because people asking these questions are usually very well informed. My question I put out to all of us, are we really well informed? Or do we read through these and we take them on faith? There's nothing wrong with taking something on faith, but if you're going to try to help answer someone's questions, they don't have that faith. They're looking for some answers. Be ready to give an account. And that's what I'm trying to help everyone here with, to be able to give an account for what happened. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. 
At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. I glossed over that the first time I read it. The raven didn't come back. And it doesn't say it died. It said it went to and fro. And we're in the 10th month, and they're not going to get out of the boat for another four months. Why even mention this particular raven? What was he doing? It's a bit of a reminder of what happened. We shouldn't forget what just happened. The raven's got to eat, and it's a carry-on bird, meaning it, it, it eats things that have died. Everything on the earth has died. It was a terrible thing that, hadn't, that had just happened, and we shouldn't forget that. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. We have the first symbols of peace. We have the olive branch, and we have the dove. <clears throat> and these are symbols of peace throughout all nations of the earth to this day. They are still the symbols of peace. When you say, I'm extending an olive branch to you, it's an offering of peace. In almost every peace symbol around the world where it's actually a flag or a coin or something, it's got a dove on it. The idea of someone, the olive branch, <clears throat> is representing that faithfulness and that trust in that Lord. In, in the Lord, not that Lord, the Lord. Yeah. And finding your peace within him. Out of Psalm 52, verse 8 through 9, it says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. And the dove represents purity and cleanliness and innocence. And it's often tied through in scripture to baptism. This whole event is a, whole, is a nod at baptism. The idea of finding life through the waters being delivered out of the waters by the Lord. When we read out of Matthew 3 and verse 16, it says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's God's acceptance. God has accepted Noah and his family. They have peace with the Lord through the Lord's terms. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. What happened from day one and another month and 27 days later, I'm not sure, but I can imagine the anticipation was palpable. Because it's been a year and 10 days, 
And I just can't imagine being stuck inside a relatively small space with your family for over a year. I mean, that's got to be awful. I imagine the top of the boat was a pretty popular spot. It's my turn. I got another 15 minutes, Shem. You go back inside. It's my me time. It brought up a whole bunch of other questions, actually, about spending a year in a small, well, it wasn't that small, but small enough space. There's a lot of animals, and there are 10 people, no, eight people. And a year's a long time, and when people are bored, they tend to eat. They tend to eat a lot. I was just thinking about all the food they might have had, and the fact that they're in a wooden boat. Probably weren't starting any fires. And I was just thinking of what sort of food can you eat that you don't need to start a fire that's going to be readily available for a year? That's dried food or fish, if you want sushi, yes. But I'm just thinking dried food, and I do recall uh, when I, I think it was probably the fourth grade, my mom put craisins in my lunch every day. It does not take very long to get tired of craisins. <laughs> I was just thinking how, how not having good food really does set people on edge after a while. I imagine tensions were fairly high. And then I thought about all the animals. They've got to eat a lot. If there were around the 3,500 animals that we think there were, if you have four men at 3,500 animals, that's around 850 animals each they're caring for each day. They're busy. They're busy doing the work. And animals don't just eat. That's a lot to clean up. That's a whole process. That's a long day every day. Just things I think about when I read through the Bible slowly. <laughs> Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird. Everything that moves on the earth went out, families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. This is a fresh start. And again, it should remind us right back to Genesis 1, day 5, when God created all of the animals and he said, be fruitful and multiply. It's a recurring of this. It's a clean slate. And it just occurred to me, why didn't God just start over? Why don't you just go and have it all be gone? and just use new dirt and make new things. Why didn't that happen? And it's all because God is faithful. It's all to fulfill the promises he's made. That were all the way back in Genesis 3, God promised salvation would come, that the snake would be defeated ultimately, and we would be brought back in. <clears throat> and if he just goes, done with you, then he's not true to who he is. But then they offered burnt offerings at this point. And I thought, why a burnt offering instead of one of the other five major offerings? Because there's a burnt offering, there's a peace offering, there's a grain offering, there's a sin offering, and there's a guilt offering. 
And if you go back to Leviticus 1, and it starts to outline those five specific offerings and the different things you do for them and what they're for. So I thought, why a burnt offering? So I read Leviticus 1, and it says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So atonement can be for forgiveness, for consecration, for cleanness, for appeasement of divine wrath, or specific forgiveness of sin. The altar and the wash bin and the utensils and the tent of meeting, of the tabernacle, all of these things had atonement made for them. They never sinned, it was to consecrate them. So there's a couple things going on with the idea of, a, of many burnt offerings here. For one, who would Noah make atonement for? He's accounted as being righteous, <clears throat> and all the wicked of the world have just been eliminated. So who is he making atonement for? His family. They got together in the boat because they were Noah's family. It doesn't ever say that they were declared as being righteous. So he's making atonement for his family. But he's also consecrating the earth because the earth is covered in a lot of death now. And that has to be atoned for as well. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Life will go on. There will be buying, there will be selling, there will be people getting married, there will be new births, there will be celebrations, there will be work, there will be the mundane, there will be life. It will continue until it doesn't. Because someday it won't. There is a promise that someday everything will end. Out of Matthew 24, it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then it was too late. There comes a point in life where it will be too late to find that peace with God where it'll be too late to, I'm still wrestling with it, can I have five more minutes? There will be a too late, but there will be so much opportunity in between. But it can be very daunting because it, Jesus also says, the gate is narrow and the path is hard that leads to everlasting life and those who find it are few. That can be very depressing. It can make you want to give up on the whole thing. Why even bother? They're just going to reject you, Lord. They're going to say no anyways. They're going to ridicule me of it. Why can't I just hold on until you come back? Because there is good news. That's right. That's right. Because there is hope. Because God does not enjoy the death of one single person.
And we shouldn't hope for that either. Out of Psalm 103, it says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows who we are. He knows what we are. He made us. He understands us. And he has given each and every one of us this opportunity to know him and to partner with him and show others his great love and light in this world. Pro Proverbs 16 says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's way pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Amen? Would you stand with us?